Hi everyone and welcome to another Firms Consulting podcast. Today's podcast is going to look at the behind the scenes work that went into putting together um, September's uh, Firms Consulting quarterly article, Unemployed to the Big Three, which profiled eight fairly remarkable um, women from several emerging markets, primarily in Central Asia and um, Asia, that you know basically reinvented their lives over the course of two to three years to enter management consulting in the case of two of the clients, you know, get offers at uh, BCG and Bain, but, you know, decide to pursue a career in banking. So um, the articles obviously generated a lot of debate and a lot of, um, I think, needed discussion about, uh, you know, not just the challenges females face, but whether consulting firms are doing enough to find the right kind of people or whether they're just cherry-picking the best um, and, and I think that kind of debate is needed. So today's podcast is not going to get involved in that debate. I think maybe we can do it later. I wanted to talk about the, the thinking that goes into putting these kind of articles. And I want to link that up to the kind of advice you want to take from this article. Because one of the things that we did when we redesigned Firms Consulting is we decided we would no longer publish blog posts. We decided blog posts are going to end for us. We're moving to long-form journalism. And if you think about it, that's where Firms Consulting actually started off. I mean, the one of the most famous pieces we ever wrote was the piece on a monitor company way back when we challenged many of the assumptions and many of the assertions placed on the website. One of our most famous articles because of the amount of changes it brought about in the way monitor company was being managed, right? I mean, I think that it it was this kind of work we wanted to do, in-depth pieces of research and bringing about necessary change in the industry. Now, while that was a start, we wanted to take that even further with the new quarterly and introduce, I would say, a much more thorough model of prescriptive research and fact-checking. So I'm going to talk a little bit about these concepts, and at the end, once we've, you know, um, once we've discussed how we've put together the article, I'm then going to use that as a base to talk about what you can extract from the article and what you cannot extract from the article. And what's interesting about this is that um, Irina and I have different views on this. I'm a, by nature cautious, and I think that you have to be very careful in the kind of decisions you make. And on the other hand, Irina, given what she's accomplished, I think she can be uh, more optimistic, and she's taken the opposite viewpoint where she thinks that you know people should go out there and try their best. Now, I'm not saying she's wrong; she's definitely right because it's you know it's her life. She was the, uh, for all intensive purposes, in inverted commas, the guinea pig in this experiment, and she's obviously done very well. But I think that. Um, not everyone has a profile, not everyone has a attributes, and I want people to take the right kind of lessons from this. So let's talk about how we did the research. Now, all of the firm's consulting quarterly pieces are written over something like a, I would say, a four-month to a six-month cycle, which means that we don't put the articles together in a short space of time. They're done over about a six-month period. So, so why do we have that six-month period? Why are we not writing things off in a, you know, you know, in a, over one weekend and you know, sending it off? Well, there's a couple of reasons for that. For one, we have to, we're basing the articles not off the anecdotal evidence ideas I may have or another principal or another partner of you know, experts 
McKinsey partner who's working at Firms Consulting may have. We've decided not to write those kind of articles anymore because the problem with them is that they are, sound so beautiful, they're so wonderful. You know, you see them all the time. People write off their opinions, but there are opinions at the end of the day. Even if we are citing actual things we've seen, we need to back it up with data in the article. So that process of writing doesn't start with the article, actually. It starts with finding a subject around which the article is going to be built. It then involves either following the subject, observing the subject, extracting the, le the thinking from the subject, laying that out in a table, and then looking at what that is telling us and writing out what that is telling us then taking that thinking that we've put together, sharing it with the subject and saying, hey, you know what, this is what we came up with, this is what we thought you were doing, is this correct? The subject, in this case, Arena and her you know, group of um, um, women, would then say, okay, no, we disagree with this, no, that's not what I did, um, actually, your interpretation here is correct, um, no, I didn't actually spend so much time doing this. Then, it's a back and forth process, right? As Arena and her group, you know, Nargis and, and Alana and so on, change the facts in the article, we've got to then think, okay, if the facts are changing, has our interpretation changed? Now, sometimes our interpretation is going to change, so the direction we wanted to take the article to in, in the initial place is no longer valid because the facts no longer support that. We then got to rewrite the article, and that happened to us. We rewrote chunks of the article because the facts on the ground didn't support some of the inferences we were making. For example, one of the things that was quite surprising to me was the role of confidence for these women. I, it was little bit shocking how little confidence they had. We kind of knew that when we wrote the article, but I didn't think it would be such a central element throughout the story. Especially when you meet them. I mean, Irina, Nargis, Alana, they're not women that you would, you know, push around. You know, you met them on a the street, you meet them in a boardroom. These are not women you're going to say, oh, you know, this is a woman I can push around. No, these are tough women. You'd be afraid to, you know, mess with them. So that the lack of confidence was definitely a part that we didn't realize. And then as we kept on rewriting the articles, we, we made that a more central theme. So it's a process of constantly rewriting. Now, once we've rewritten the article, we then have to say, okay, Michael, you've been, you're the editor, you're the main editor for this piece. You've been working on this for six months. Now, wh what happens is that as you work with your uh, subjects for a lengthy period, you tend to buy in to what they're saying. And because you've worked on the piece, you cannot fact check. It's a very simple rule. The person writing the piece should never fact check the piece. So we have two models of fact checking it. The one is what is known as an implicit fact checking and the other one is explicit fact checking. Let's talk about implicit fact checking. Implicit fact checking is not really fact checking. Um, it's what most people do and they call it fact checking, but it's not fact checking. I use it or Firms Consulting uses it to make sure we get different viewpoints. So what we do is we reach out to clients and say, hey, you know what? We've written this piece. Would you mind reading this and tell us what you think? Now, those clients will read it and they'll send us their written responses, which we've published. And they'll challenge certain things. Like one of the things they've challenged us here is, um, you can read what Emma said, is that, you know, Michael, when I read this, it sounds like you're talking about men. So is the question here that you've made these women more like you? She's not saying that directly, but that's what she's implying. Or have you allowed them to bring out their natural... Um, 
leadership style that they're most comfortable with. You know, you've made them quite tough and aggressive in the way you've managed them. But is that the only way they could have gotten to their goal? Now, I think that's a really good um, uh, question, but I don't think it could have been answered in that article. It's for maybe another follow-up piece that we would need to do, right? Now, those are implicit fact-checking. People that we know well, who think differently from us, who are very, very careful on data, going through it and checking everything. I think implicit fact-checking is useful for thinking through the conceptual logic, but it is certainly not useful when it comes down to passing you know, the, the kind of fact-checking standards set by the New York Times and New Yorker. So we, 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 we took their methodology and we took it even further. So typically those organizations have a team of something like you know, 18, 25, 30 people you know, sitting in the New York offices calling up and fact-checking things. Now, the one problem I have with calling up and fact-checking you know, articles is that the context is missing. You know, it's one thing to be an intern from Brown College sitting in an office in New York and sitting and drinking, you know, lattes and cappuccinos, uh, it's quite another thing to, you know, um, be an intern sitting in Moscow, fact-checking an article in Moscow. Obviously, I'd prefer to have the Moscow intern, but even that's not enough for me because one of the things with fact-checking is it's not enough for the facts to make sense on paper. A story is multidimensional. Fact, uh, facts can make a lot of sense on a piece of paper, but when you actually visit the scene of the alleged incident, you notice things don't actually work out, right? It's a lot like how crime scenes are reenacted. You know, you've got to recreate the scene to see if the story makes sense. And you may ask yourself, you know, why would we do this, right? I'll answer that question once I explain to you how we do the fact that once I explain how we do the explicit flag checking. So what we do is for each of our articles. We hire a photographer and we hire a camera crew. Uh, well, they're usually the same person, right? But, you know, they're a photographer slash camera crew. And their job is they're also people where we have sort of a, a background in business and they have a, um, a very good local knowledge of the region. So, you know, we hired a, um, a former business student from, for example, Kazakhstan to fact check, um, you know, Nargiz's story and so on. We hired a, a photographer slash, you know, business student from, um, um, uh, Ukraine, who in you know, our husband and wife team who do this kind of investigative work, and we gave them the story and we gave them a list of things they need to fact check. Now, the fact checking is quite extreme here, in the sense that, you know, if 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 um, if Irina is talking to us about the horrible environment in which she grew up, the tiny house with the heater that didn't work, and you know she's telling us about how she had to squeeze into bed every night, blah blah blah. Um, now. The real danger we have here is that by printing these stories, can you imagine some woman in, I don't know, Malaysia reading this and saying, oh my God, this woman had a far worse situation than me and she did much more. I must be a loser. I definitely do not want any reader to think that. So, it would have been very easy for us to have published everything without fact-checking it, but we then sent out our camera crew and said, okay, these are all of the things we want you to fact-check. We want you to visit the restaurants that these women said they visited. We wanted to go to their. We want you to go to their university. We want you to take photographs of their uh, rooms where they studied, the halls where they walked. We want you to visit their former houses, photograph it. Ask the couples that are living there now just to see if you know we can get photographs of them going through their days in their lives, so we can get a feel for what their lives were. Now that's the level of fact checking that we took this to. You know, got transcripts, corroborated all stories because for us it's really important 
that we're not basing this on anecdotal evidence, which in my opinion, that's how most business books are written. Most business books, you know, someone lives a life and they start writing about what they experience, but they're not fact-checking it. They're writing what they th- what they think happened. And even if you experienced something, it doesn't mean it happened the way you think it happened. Now, I'm going to get to this point. It's the principle of prescriptive versus descriptive writing. Now, if you think now this is not an important point, it's a very important point. A lot of business books, including some of the most famous business books, I'll give you an example, um, Blue Ocean Strategy, hugely famous business book, 2005, I think in 2006, it came out by two very accomplished INSEAD professors. Now, it's not an attack on the INSEAD professors. I'm sure they're very accomplished. The point of the book is that if you read that book, it's so well written, but it has many flaws. One major flaw is that there is no company, except I think one, I think it was a Japanese company, that followed the strategy laid out in the book in advance and then saw what would happen. Most companies described in that book read about what they were doing sorry, in in the Blue Ocean Strategy book, and then said, oh, we were following Blue Ocean Strategies. The point is, the book is very descriptive. Basically, it's looking at past business decisions and evaluating it through the lens of Blue Ocean Strategy. Now, what does this mean, and why is this such a big issue? It's a big issue because when you do that, you cannot prescribe a set of ideas and strategies that companies should follow to achieve the results the book is stating should happen. Now, this is a big debate. It's not a debate, actually. In management sciences, books cannot be descriptive. They must be prescriptive. You must explain why something happened, how it happened, and then you must be able to recommend a set of actions someone else can take to achieve the same result. Now, if you look at the McKinsey Quarterly, it's written in a prescriptive style. And I think, you know, they did that on purpose. They don't want to be accused of being descriptive. They want to be able to explain this is what a client did and this is what you can do to achieve the same result, right? Now, a lot of books are, are written in the prescriptive style, but they're not prescriptive. Now, to make a book prescriptive, you need a control group at the end of the day. If you don't have a control group, how do you know that what you have is not unfalsifiable. The bottom line is without a control group, you can't prove that this can be false, right? And it's not a, dedu- it's not a deductive, you're not inferring things, it's not a deductive process. So, you know, when we ran this process out, we did have a control group. I remember we had some clients with a similar background in some parts of the world. In fact, we even had some control groups in the Ukraine and Russia, um, not a large control, control group, but two or three people, with very similar backgrounds going through a very different process to see if the other process is going to arrive at the same, you know, um, you know, result. You need those control groups. So, you know, I, I like it when people write these really nice stories about um, what they think is happening. But there's a reason that many articles, including the Harvard Business Review, including Bloomberg, publish them as blogs, and Bloomberg pu- publishes them as opinion pieces because that's what they are. They are opinion pieces. They are not facts. They're not prescriptive studies. They're not studies with a control group. You're not writing a scientifically researched article unless you have a control group, right? Now, my final you know, uh, point here is that given the amount of people who are going to 
you know, set decisions based on what on the what's in the article, we needed to make sure that the article met the highest standards of what I would call, you know, journalistic integrity here. And you can see some of the photos we took, you know, everything must be checked, double checked, triple checked. It must pass all of the different rational thinking that we could have applied to this. Now, with that in mind, you know, how do you or how do you as a um, reader think about applying this to your everyday life okay my 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 honest opinion here is that don't do anything when you read the article initially. The article's long. I think it's 16 pages, right? And it could have been longer, but I decided that certain things that we wanted to discuss, we couldn't prove it, so let's remove it, right? And we, we stuck to the things, you know, when we talk about grades, methods, and we stuck to it because it's verifiable. The data supports it, and a control group, you know, allows us to see that that is indeed the case. So I think that when you read the article, don't just react. Don't jump up because the article is long. It's going to take you a long time to process what's there. I would read the article, make a lot of notes. You're welcome to contact me, but, but remember, we get a lot of articles, uh, but I publish a lot of people want to comment, so we don't have time to respond to everything. I would, you know, use the group section, you know, the women premium groups to open a dialogue there and discuss it with other members. What you want to do is you want to understand two things. You want to first take the time to understand the article in its entirety before going ahead and making any changes to your lifestyle. I mean, that is really super important. Don't do anything until you understand what is being said in the article, right? That's the first point. The second point is have a truthful view of your profile. Now, that is easier said than done. A lot of us tend to think we are better than we really are. It's just human nature. We always think we are better than we really are. I mean, I stressed this point in the previous podcast where I said that a lot of people tell me that you know when they when they when we first started looking at you know female clients to take into this program, and I'd interview them and say you know can you do the work that is required? Can you really handle the amount of pressure we're going to put you under? They all say yes, I can handle it. The reality is most ninety five to ninety nine percent of people cannot handle the pressure so it's not whether you fit the profile it's not how ambitious you are it's not how determined you are determination and ambition are mutually exclusive on whether you can handle the sacrifices and pain that are required here and sacrifice are not financial it's going to cost you a lot whether you know you're most likely not going to work with us because you know the screening is so heavy you're going to do this by yourself you're going to be spending a lot of money to update your resumes to apply to you know if you don't have an undergraduate degree, go study again, get into a business school, and there are no guarantees here, right? You're doing it by yourself. Um, things may not work out. So what I would do first is that understand the article, understand your profile. Then, over a few weeks to a few months, map out the plan that you have in mind, right? So, you know, we, we, we have that as the summary page, all of the things you need to do, but do that. Map out your three-year, five-year plan and say, okay, this is what I'm going to do in the next six months. This is when I'm going to write my GMAT. This is when I'm going to do this. This is when I'm going to do this. This is when I'm going to do this. Now, as you map out that plan, you're going to have a pretty good plan for what's going to happen. Now, I'm going to say something that you're not going to like, but I'm going to say it because it's important to be said. If you're one of those people 
who are cancelling events and cancelling time to read and time to study because you need to spend more time with your family or you're worried about neglecting your friends, you're worried about neglecting your husband or you need to attend family functions or you need to, you know, you're busy doing other stuff. You're not going to make it in this program. This is not a program for people who cannot make sacrifices in their personal life. I'll tell that right now. Uh, the key test for us here is whether you can make sacrifices repeatedly. You have to go through this repeatedly making sacrifices. If you're someone who tells me, Michael, you know, or if you think you're someone who's going to say, tell yourself or whoever you're working with, uh, you know, I couldn't work on this this weekend because I had to attend a family function right then and there. If that is, if you feel that is an excuse you're going to give, you're not someone who's going to make it through this program. This program calls for daily, weekly, hourly sacrifices on time and commitment. Because every time you miss a deadline, you push out everything further. And, you know, given the fact that you are probably going to have a really... I would say a bad resume, and I don't mean that in a negative sense, I'm just stating that as a fact. You don't have time to push things out. If you are going to be pushing things out on such mundane activities as the fact that your mother-in-law wanted you to come over for Friday and you couldn't do your training, then you've got problems, in my opinion, right? You've got to make the sacrifices, right? So, as I said earlier, the first thing you have to do is read the article and understand it, and it's going to take you about more than a month of multiple readings to understand it because it's such a the, it's a dense article, right? It's written that way because we wanted to convey a lot of important points. Understand yourself, understand where they can do this, and and when judges understand it, lay out the plan and think about how this is going to pan out. You know, this is intense. It's not as if you know you're going to say, "Oh, I'm going to put this away for the next month and I'll relook at it." A month means a lot. You can change a lot in a month. So if you're going to be you know, delaying by a month, two months, three months, you're basically hurting yourself. So don't go down this path unless you can see it through. And the path's going to last two to three years minimum. And two to three years of an intense, high-pressure environment is not something anyone wants to go through, in my opinion. But if you're really determined about doing this, you should do it. Now, use the article and the profiles of these people as a foil for you. Um, and when I say a foil, what I mean by that is don't just read the article and listen about how, you know, um, you know, Samira or whatever her name was, uh, you know, whatever the client we profiled there talked about how she was able to meet the ethics quality standards and say, oh, I can do the same. You've got to put yourself in the situation whereby you've maybe taken a loan for, I don't know, $70,000 to do your NCAT MBA. You then uh, at class, a lot of pressure on you to do well, finish in the top 10%. You're not doing well. You know, you've made a lot of sacrifices for your family, your husband, and so on. Um, they haven't seen you. You know if you don't do well, you're going to let them all down. you got to review the decisions in the right context and ask yourself whether you can see these things through. Now, if you read the behind-the-scenes story, you can see that Irina is very optimistic. And I think that Irina sees things through her lens, which is, you know, a very accomplished lady, very hardworking, gets the job done. You know, she's there's a reason why um, Eastern European women feature so prominently in that group because the mentality they have is that, you know what, I can do anything, I can handle the pain, I'm Eastern European, I've been through hell and back. And it kind of fits them. 
Now, my feeling here is that I don't think a lot of people can do that. I think a lot of people, in a in a happy context, without the real pressure, they can say, "I can do it." It's like it's like playing a computer game and shooting someone and saying, "Yeah, I can kill someone." It's very different when you're standing in an alley somewhere, in a real alley with a gun in your hand, and you you know looking at someone with a gun to their head. The, my, my point is. Don't embark on this journey until you've thought through the real challenges you're going to face because it's a long journey. You know, it's going to cost you a lot of money to study and so on. And while I think it can be done, there's a reason why we profile so few people because it's really difficult to see through to the conclusion. Now, if you are going to see it through, my feeling is that you need that plan. The plan is everything. Don't start this journey without knowing when the end goal is because you know in some of the control groups we've had you know one not one I think it was two particular students we didn't allow them to put a deadline we allowed them to um, you know see things through right to the end as whenever they thought it was and you see them constantly postponing constantly postponing so they eventually did everything they wanted to do but rather than being a three-year journey you know it's going to take them a long time. They just started their MBAs now, two-year MBA programs, which means that they're going to finish in about two years from now, which means it's turned into a five-year journey for them, which means they're going to be a lot older. They've taken much longer to finish their degrees. They've, you know, not, they did badly at some courses. They decided to redo it. The point is sticking to a deadline is very important. And if you don't have that deadline and you're not willing to work to that deadline, you're ultimately going to suffer, Right. Now, if you if you th- listening to this podcast and you think, okay, what should I do? I would say, follow the guidelines at the front of the article, especially creating that Harvard forward-looking resume of what you think you'll have to accomplish the day you are applying to McKinsey. But set deadlines to that. If you're going to finish your undergraduate degree, set a timeline to that. If you're going to do your networking, set a timeline. If you're going to apply for GMAT, set a timeline. If you're going to apply to a business school, set a timeline. If you're going to apply to a um, graduate from a business school, set a timeline. Here's the important thing. Before embarking on inexpensive ventures, set yourself some set yourself several timelines in the next six months before you incur any major investments. Now, if you are missing more than two of those deadlines, do not proceed. Because if you cannot meet the deadlines at the beginning, I can assure you things get a lot worse later. And you'll be missing all of the deadlines. Now you know, it's obviously fair to say that Arena missed tons of deadlines. You know, Samira, Alana, and so on. They were constantly missing deadlines, but there's a difference. They had a coach watching them, right? And I could, you know, put pressure and say, look, you missed the deadline. you got to get your act together. I expect you to do this this weekend. You know, even if it means, um, you know, skipping a few other things, do it. I'll help you if you need to. The coach plays that role. When you're doing it by yourself... It's very hard to have that, you know, someone looking over your shoulder, providing oversight, guiding you, and so on. So, it's very hard to replicate. You know, your family can't do it because a lot of times, when you know, people from this background, they don't have families who can understand what they're pursuing. So, you have a family member who looks at you and says, you're putting in a lot of the sacrifice, you're neglecting us, but I don't see the value. You know, women from our background never achieve these things. So I don't see why you're doing it, right? So, I think that you have to be super careful about finding a way to make sure that you can stick to the deadlines. And it's not the same as saying, oh, I can do it, because I can assure you you're not going to do it. 
no one does it you know we have to play the role of pushing them and pushing them and pushing them and sometimes declaring martial law and intervening and stopping them from doing something else and putting them back onto the right track it's that difficult so when you're going through this journey by yourself, I don't want you to look at the women in the article and say, oh, they achieved so much, they're much better than me. They're not better than you. They had some really good help, you know, backing them here. Um, and you've got to then be realistic about what you can achieve and what you cannot achieve. Now, if you are aware of these deficiencies in preparing by yourself and you are able to build a plan to go ahead and overcome this, then by all means do it. I personally believe that what these women have shown us is quite remarkable. It does create a compelling, not just a narrative, but it com creates a compelling basis of fact that we can replicate, a prescription as such that we were trying to put together here. Confidence is going to be a big issue, and you're not going to deal with confidence. So if you're thinking, let me deal with my confidence, and then I'll do this, then I think that's a very big lesson here. You can't deal with confidence to do this. You have to do this while your confidence is weak and just hide it. Right, And I always tell people, people always say that confidence is an issue. Yes, confidence is an issue, but not the way you think it is. Confidence is an issue because you, most people, especially women, try to build their confidence before they do things. One of the strategies we followed with all of these women is we tell them that okay, we don't care about your confidence. It's weak. That's okay. But what we want you to do is have a tough exterior and keep that exterior so even if you do lack confidence, no one should be able to see that, right? That is the key thing here. As long as you remember that, you should be fine. As always, you know, use the groups to comment and so on. And feel free to write to us through the website, you know, if it's important. And we see that we can add some value to the discussion that's taking place either between your friends or in the group you've created. We will try to contribute.